Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here this morning, and it's good to to bring the message this morning. Um, I'm excited to be able to speak to you guys, and I'm always delighted at the opportunity. Um, Pastor Jake is on his sabbatical, so he's taking three months off, and so uh, it's a blessing to be able to fill in and help where I can, and uh, there's others who are going to be doing so as well. And actually, if I could get... Um, Joel Giesbrecht and Travis Friesen to stand up. <clears throat> Joel Giesbrecht is going to be preaching next Sunday, and Travis Friesen will be, will be preaching the Sunday after. So let's keep them in our prayers. You guys can sit down, but let's keep them in our prayers. It is, uh, it's a lot of work. It's mentally tasking, and it's a big responsibility to, to prepare and to preach God's Word. And, it, and if you want to know a bit about what our pastors go through, then offer to preach a sermon. And... Uh, You'll understand how how difficult it is, but um, I'm really excited to speak to you guys this morning. Sorry, Linda. I'm going to be moving around a little bit. Um, I'm excited to talk to you guys because God's word is exciting. You know, that song that was just on talked about, I want to know you. I want to know Jesus. And the worship team told us this this morning a little bit about who Jesus is. He's a good father. He's mighty to save. You know, he's an awesome God. And... You know, that line struck me, you're perfect in all of your ways. And I wonder sometimes whether we really believe that or not. You're perfect in all your ways. You mean, when my wife leaves me, you're perfect in all your ways? When I have cancer, you're perfect in all of your ways? When I lose my job, you're perfect in all of your ways? It's hard to believe that sometimes. But it's true. God is good. And today I'm excited to talk about Matthew 16. A few months ago, I was reading Matthew 16, and for those of you who know me well, I love learning about leadership. Leadership is exciting. We can, we can inspire people, and so I'm very interested to learn about leadership and what leadership principles us leaders can use to get people on board, to get people excited, and, and how we can lead well. And I think Jesus is such an amazing example of leadership. And so when reading through Matthew chapter 16, leadership principles just jumped out at me. And I'm not going to preach a leadership message this morning because there's many of you that will just go, I'm not a leader and you're not going to listen. So I tried to, to bring these about in a way where they're practical for everyday living. Each one of you can use these principles in your life. And I've entitled my message Lessons from the Life of Jesus. And so I found seven lessons that, that we can learn from the life of Christ this morning. And uh, before we start this morning, I want to I wanna start off with a word of prayer and ask the Holy Spirit's blessing over our time in God's Word this morning. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you so much for what we've already done this morning in singing praise to your name and, and hearing about the coming events and the things that will go on in the next couple of weeks here and through the rest of the summer. And, and we're just excited at what you're doing in our church. We're excited at what you're doing across the world and And we're excited to know that you are a God who cares, and we're interested to look at the lessons that we can learn from Jesus and how he lived, and we pray your blessing over it this morning. We pray that your Holy Spirit will lead and guide us as we look into your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So seven lessons that we can learn from the life of Jesus. These are very practical. As he was walking around, he talked with people. He dealt with people. And I think we can look at how he handled situations, and we can learn principles and lessons that we can take for our own lives. So the first lesson that I learned in reading this in this 
reading in this chapter is know when to walk away. So if you want to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, I'll be reading out of the ESV this morning. We'll start this morning at the beginning of Matthew. The Pharisees and the Sadducees come to Jesus and they come to him for the purpose of testing him. They're not interested in really finding out who he is. They're only interested in getting him to do or say something that they could use against him. So they ask him to give a sign. And starting in verse 2, Jesus says, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus denied their request for a sign because he understood their hidden motives and their unbelieving hearts. Just prior to this exchange, he had come across the lake from Great crowds of people coming to him, bringing all sorts of sick and diseased people and being healed. Three days after healing all these people, this great multitude of people, Jesus miraculously fed them by multiplying seven loaves of bread and a few small fish to enough food for 4,000 men, not including women and children. And Jesus knew that if the the religious leaders wouldn't believe based on those signs that he was, there was no point in giving a sign now because he knew they weren't going to believe then either. So what does Jesus do? Well, the end of verse 4 tells us. So he left them and departed. And that's our first lesson for today. You need to learn to know when to walk away. There's times when people are going to come after you. There's times when people are going to try to accuse you falsely and try to drag you down as the leaders did Jesus. But you need to know when is the time to defend yourself and when is the time to just walk away. Because if you can't change their mind, then what's the point of arguing? Yeah, sure, there's a sense sense of satisfaction in us arguing, in us debating and bringing these things to these people and just continuing this fight. But there's a time to walk away and Jesus knew that. He knew there was no point in arguing. It's kind of ironic because when Jesus was hanging on the cross, the religious leaders said, if he would just come down from the cross, we'll believe. Well, that would be an incredible miracle, right? It would be hard not to believe that. Well, he rose from the dead. They admitted that he rose from the dead, which was a far greater miracle than just coming down from the cross, and they still refused to believe. Not only that, but they suppressed the truth, and they paid the guards to lie about it. So he knew they weren't going to believe, and so that's why he refused, and he walked away. The temptation can be to argue endlessly and try to convince the other person that you're right. But the old quote is true. A man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. We can't change people's minds There's nothing you can do. And Jesus also said, wisdom is proved right by her children or by her actions. Which means that if you can't prove by what you're saying, then let your actions prove you right. And Jesus' actions proved him right. He was the Son of God and he had the power of God because he did miracles. That proved what he was saying. Moving on to lesson number two. Be careful who you listen to. 
We find this lesson in verses 5 through 12 of Matthew 16. And here we read of how after they left the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they departed and they got on a boat and they went across and the disciples forgot bread. And so Jesus says in verse 6, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I do not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus understood how important it is to guard our minds and our hearts and what goes into our mind. Leaven is the, is the agent that causes the dough to rise. And Jesus said elsewhere, a little bit of yeast leavens the whole batch. It permeates the whole batch and causes it to grow. So what goes into your mind matters. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 33 says, Bad company ruins good morals. And so it is with whatever you are watching or listening to. Zig Ziglar used to say, You are where you are and who you are because of what has gone into your mind. You can change where you are. You can change who you are by changing what goes into your mind. Many of the struggles we have are a result of the things we allow into our minds. So if there are bad influences that you're listening to or watching, replace them with ones that honor Christ. There are certain radio broadcasts that, that are on in this area I don't need to mention them because you guys know them already. And I don't need to tell you to not listen to them because you know you shouldn't be listening to them. But those are the kinds of things. If you're struggling with pornography, if you're struggling with doubt, if you're struggling with fear, worry, gossiping, discontentment, what's going into your mind? What is causing those things to come to the forefront and permeate your entire life? I used to play a lot of video games. I used to watch a lot of TV and a lot of meaningless, useless stuff like that. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with them. But I used to think, I didn't have time to read the Bible. I don't have time to serve in church. I don't have time to help people. And then I would sit and play two hours of video games. Now you get rid of some of the other things. And now, now there's so much time for family, for friends, for church. And now there's times where I'm like, Man, I should just go play just one game of NHL, you know, just, just to relive my past, you know. And then it's like, I don't have time. And it's now kind of reversed the other way, where there's too many things I have to do that I don't have time to play video games. I don't have time to, to do a lot of those things that I used to spend so much time on. And it's kind of interesting how that works. So in your life, think about it. What are you spending time on? And what is the, what is the fruit of the time you're spending on certain things? So be careful who you listen to. There's many podcasts and YouTube channels and, and all sorts of radio and TV and influences out there, so let's be careful. There's so many voices to listen to. Which one are you putting into your mind? 
Number three, the third lesson that we can learn today is ask others what they think about you. Ask what others think about you. And we get this, where Jesus puts himself in an incredibly vulnerable position, starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah are one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is very interesting because Jesus, well, I don't want to say that he cared what other people thought because I don't really know that he did. I don't want to judge his intentions. But he asked the question. I don't know how many of you would be that bold and that daring to go to someone and say, who do you think I am? Or who do people say that I am? But I think a lot can be learned from that question. I think we can find out who we really are as believers by asking someone to judge fairly from what they see from the outside. Because a lot of times, we can't see that. We're biased. We always think, we always give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. You know, Andy Stanley kind of talks about it this way. He talks about leadership and he said, as leaders, he says, we need to be able to trust each other. He says, let's say, for example, there's a meeting and you show up late for the meeting. Well, he said, you show up late and you have a bunch of really good reasons of why you were late. Well, I was trying to spend more time with my wife or I started throwing the baseball around in the yard with my kids. and, And really, the reason I'm late is because I was trying to be such a good person. And he says, but if you're in the meeting and someone else shows up late, oh, wow, he really doesn't have his priorities straight, you know. He should have been on time to the meeting and I bet you he was probably just being lazy or... And I feel like that's such an interesting point because we don't give other people the benefit of the doubt the way that we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. And so I feel like because we are not honest with ourselves, we need to get other people's opinions. But that doesn't mean they're right. When Jesus asked what public opinion was of him, they were wrong. They were just calling him a good prophet, a good person. But he was far greater than that. He was the son of God. So people can be wrong when they judge us. But I still think there's value in asking the question. But I also want to be careful of who you ask, because notice, he didn't just ask anybody on the street. He asked his disciples. They were the people that knew him the best, that knew his vision the best, that knew his plan and his purpose the best. So because they knew him the best, they were the most suited to judge him, or to at least give him an idea of what the public consensus was of him. Find someone that knows you well knows what you stand for, and ask them honestly to tell you what they think about you. How you're measuring up. This is putting yourself in a very vulnerable position. So first of all, make sure you're ready to hear whatever they have to say. And make sure the person you ask is someone who will speak the truth in love. I'll mention briefly the story of David. We all know when David sinned, Nathan comes up to him and he says, there was a man, a rich man, and a poor man. The rich man had many sheep. And the poor man just had one. He ate at his own table. But when the rich man had a guest, instead of killing one of his own sheep for the meal, he took the lamb of the poor man. And David was enraged. He says, once you tell me who this man is, I'm going to kill him. And Nathan says, you are that man. But notice David's response. I have sinned. 
So in that situation, David didn't ask for his opinion, but he gave it. But David was willing to admit where he was wrong. And so I think there in that moment is a very valuable lesson for us to learn that Jesus took here to say, who do people say that I am and who do you say that I am? So I think we can learn a lot from that. Number four. This is kind of a double, a double lesson where we should live empowered, but we should also live to empower others. <clears throat> As we continue on, we see Jesus giving his plan for the authority the church will have. So after Peter declares who Christ is, Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Verse 18, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so here we have this principle that Jesus gives the church the authority to make decisions and lets them know that heaven backs up their decisions. This is incredible that God, the perfect, flawless, holy God, would entrust mere men with the responsibility and the task of carrying out the work of God. That truly is an amazing responsibility. God empowers His church to do His work and supports the decisions it makes when it follows God's Word. This passage is not saying that a church can do whatever it wants and that heaven will support it, but is saying that at the, as the church follows God's pattern for dealing with situations, God will support it. The Greek word for church means called out ones. So this really applies to all believers. We have the authority to carry out God's word and to know that he will back us up. And also to know that those little decisions matter. They mean something. God's book is to guide us. The scripture is to guide us through life. And when we make those decisions, heaven supports us. Wouldn't that give you incredible confidence if you were at your work and your, job, your boss came up to you and said something like that? You know, here, Ben, I'm putting you in charge of this, this project. And man, whatever you do, I back you up. You make a mistake, it's all good. Me and you, we're good. And he gives you that authority. Think of the confidence that that gives you. We need to begin living empowered lives, knowing that we are carrying out heaven's work. We also need to live to empower others. If you're a leader at work, at church, or even if you're just a parent trying to motivate a child, let them know that we support them. Give them some authority and let them learn from that. Are they going to make mistakes? Of course they will. Do we make mistakes? Of course we do. The disciples made many mistakes. And I have a, an interesting story about making mistakes and, uh, and how that applies to us in giving grace. In 1989, an air show was held at Brown Field in San, San Diego. The test pilot, Bob Hoover, was taking thrill-seekers for flights in the Shrike Commander, a small piston-powered passenger plane. The passengers were known as Hoover's Heavers. <laughs> More often than not, they were sick during the flight. On this, on this occasion, the Heavers got more than a thrill they paid for. When the plane had climbed to 300 feet, it lost all power and gravity started to pull it relentlessly back to earth. Bob Hoover managed to cut the airspeed and safely crash-landed the plane uphill onto the side of a ravine. The plane was severely damaged, but he and his two passengers walked away. What caused the power failure? 
This was the question spinning in Bob Hoover's mind as he sat on the hillside waiting to be rescued. So he walked back to the plane and smelled the fuel. Instead of gasoline, it was jet fuel. A member of the ground crew had mistaken the piston engine plane for a turboprop and misfueled it. A simple mistake, as easy as putting petrol in your diesel engine, but rather more dramatic. When he returned to the airfield, Bob Hoover walked over to the man who had nearly caused his death and, according to the California Fullerton News Tribune, said, There isn't a man alive who hasn't made a mistake, but I'm positive you'll never make this mistake again. That's why I want to make sure that you're the only one to refuel my plane tomorrow. I won't let anyone else on the field touch it. (laughs) And it's amazing that here you have a guy who nearly caused his death, and yet he's willing to put his trust in him again, knowing that he wouldn't make the mistake again. But we can make mistakes, we can empower others, and allow them to make mistakes. You know, Craig Grishel says, if someone can do something 50% as effective as me, with momentum, I'll give it to them. Because they'll make mistakes, and he says, before long, they'll be at 110% of what I could have done. So let's empower others to make decisions. Let's empower others to take some leadership and allow them to grow. Our fifth lesson for today is share the plan or the vision and discipline to accomplish it. It has two components. So let's start in verse 21. Oh, sorry. Here we go. Jesus foretells his death and resurrection. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is so interesting to me because he shared his plan with his disciples. He shared the vision with his disciples. A lot of leaders today think that we need to keep secrets from those underneath of us, that they they can't know what we're doing. We have to keep an element of surprise. And and I don't understand why, but for some reason they think this is going to motivate their workers. It doesn't. When you feel left out, it becomes an us-against-them mentality. And so leaders, let's share information. Let's share the vision. We need to be willing to communicate and inform those who are following us so they can make better decisions, challenge our thinking, but also buy into the vision to improve. It also helps to keep us accountable. But where it is most effective to share the vision is where you are willing to sacrifice to achieve it. And so the second component is disciplining yourself. Christ shared the vision, but he also tied himself to the vision of suffering, which wasn't something that anybody would have wanted to do, and yet he submitted himself to this vision. I'm going to sacrifice my life. I'm going to sacrifice my wants, my desires, for this greater purpose of eternal salvation for the whole world. Christ shared his plan to suffer and die, which was a monumental part of sacrifice. And he disciplined himself unto death. His disciples responded by willing to be willing to die, being able to being willing to be able to die for the sake of the gospel. And so have believers all over the world ever since then. And for leaders, this will bring a whole new dimension to your team if you cast a compelling vision and show your team how you are willing to sacrifice and discipline it to make it a reality. Recently, um, our music department here at the church had a meeting, and I kind of embodied some of this 
although I have to say I've, I've done a very lackluster job of disciplining myself to do what I've said I would do. But we as a music department got together and, and we talked about the vision, looking three years ahead and saying, where do we want to be? That's how you cast the vision. You look ahead and you say, I want to be a man of God. I want to pray with my wife. I want to teach my children. I want to be a, an honorable man at work. This is where I want to be in three years. Okay, now how do you achieve that? And so we looked at these types of things as a music department. How do we want to grow as a church as we sing for you guys, as we try to lead you guys into God's presence with PowerPoint, sound? How do we improve? And we, we talked about those types of things and wanting to improve for the glory of God, wanting to improve so that you guys are edified, so that you guys are built up in church when you come here. And so we talked about those kinds of things, and I think it's so important for us to cast that kind of vision, for us to be able to sacrifice and to give a little bit more of ourselves to benefit the church, to benefit Christ. Our sixth lesson that we learned this morning, verbalize sin immediately. This is taken from verses 22 through 23, so let's read that. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. This is just after Christ said that he's going to suffer and die. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And I think it is so incredibly interesting that Jesus immediately recognized Peter as a threat to his plan, to his vision, to his purpose. Jesus didn't miss a beat. He turned to him and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. He didn't pause and think about what Peter said. He didn't say, Peter, can you explain to me a little bit more, at least what your thought process is, or, or where you're coming from? What, what, where, why did you say that? He didn't ponder it and let it settle in his mind. He immediately called it sin. You are Satan. You are hindering me. You're trying to get in the way of what my purpose is. Verbalize sin immediately. We are in a war of the mind, our flesh versus the Holy Spirit. Far too often when we're tempted, we allow thoughts to linger in our minds. The longer we allow it to linger, the greater the likelihood we will give in. Instead, when tempted, immediately call it out as sin, verbally. And I really think there is meaning to that. Verbally say it. When a thought is going through your mind and you're, you're judging a person in your mind or you're doubting or you're worrying or you're gossiping or you're lusting in your mind or you're thinking about something you shouldn't be thinking about, immediately verbalize it. That is sin. I'm not going to allow that to fill my mind. That is a hindrance to my purity. That's a hindrance to me becoming more Christ-like. And you'll be amazed at how quickly those thoughts vanish and those thoughts disappear. But you also need to be careful to replace them with honorable thoughts. Think about things that are pure and holy and just and righteous. Because the thought will come back if you don't. We can look at two examples in scriptures of this. Joseph. What did he do when, when Potiphar's wife came after him? She wanted to sleep with him. She grabbed his shoulder. She grabbed his arm. He fled. He ran just like that. He didn't stop and think about it. He didn't try to debate her and say, Well, you know what? I'm really flattered, but I really shouldn't. He ran. And then if we look at David, he is an example of the exact opposite. He's sitting on the rooftop of his house looking down, looking at this beautiful woman bathing. Huh. Can you go find out who that is for me? I'm just curious. I don't know. Just wondering. 
But that was the little bit that that he needed for him to sin. He dwelt on it. Instead of just immediately calling it sin, turning away and saying, no, I'm not going to give in to that. I'm not going to think about that. I'm not going to entertain it. And so I think this is a very practical lesson for us to verbally, verbally call sin, sin. And the last principle I want to talk about this morning, the last lesson that we learn from Christ in this passage, is get a life. This is the final lesson, if we'll read verses 24 through 28. And it's interesting that this follows Jesus saying that I'm going to give my life for you guys. I'm going to give my life as a ransom for many. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Humanly speaking, this is the most bold thing that Jesus could have possibly said. This actually really amazes me. I've been mentioning this to people for weeks. It amazes me that Jesus says, if you want to follow me, give up everything. What do we do in our society today? Just, just a dollar a day, a cup of coffee a day. The payments are only $50 biweekly. Just a little bit. If you just give an hour of your time, if you would just, just give me a little bit in hopes that we might get a few people who would make up enough of a gap to accomplish whatever it is we're trying to accomplish. We do this in the church. We minimize the responsibility so that we'll get volunteers. Ah, oh, would you serve? Would you serve as the whatever the VBS committee? It's only one week a year that you got to plan for. It's not really that big of a deal. And I'm not I'm not guilt tripping anybody who does it. We all do it. But it's because we know of the human heart. But I would challenge you to cast a great vision. Instead of diminishing the amount of time that we're going to put into something, say, you know what? There is a lot of work that goes into this event. There's a lot of work, a lot of planning, but it is worth it to see changed lives, to see changed hearts, to see the the love of Christ come through someone's life and through someone's heart. Jesus called his followers to give everything because he understood the reward. Heaven is a far greater reward than the cost of our lives here on earth. You cannot get more out of something than you put into it. Why do we go to concerts? To see a mediocre band that does an okay job? No. Why do we pay to go to a conference? Because the teaching will be okay and just subpar? No. We go because it is amazing. We go because the musicians are fantastic and well-rehearsed. We go to see someone speak because they're incredible speakers who motivate us. We watch TV programs because they're done well. Nobody watches shows that suck. And so excellence attracts people. And I think that's what we need to strive for. Pour your heart and soul into something. If you have low risk, then you'll have low reward. But if you have high risk, then you have high reward. And I'm not trying to use it as an analogy for salvation or anything. There's no risk in giving your life to Christ. It's a guarantee. You can bank on it. But what I am saying is let's pour our heart and soul into something and see the reward, see the benefit of it. Thanks to people 
who are praying for this church, thanks to people in this church who have been praying and who have been seeing change for years and who are excited about what's going on in this church, thanks to those people who have been faithful, this church is going somewhere, not because we're anybody, but because Christ is awesome, and the more we submit to Him, the greater this church is going to be. Not so that we can boast about our church, but so that we can be, have an impact in our community. And I want to call you guys, I want to take a page out of Jesus' book here, and I want to call you guys to sacrifice yourself. If you are serving already, serve harder. Serve more. Serve at a greater capacity. I'm not telling you to spend less time with your family. Dr. David Jeremiah says, First comes my relationship with God. Second, with my wife. Third, with my children. And then comes the church. And I think those things should come in that order. So I'm not asking you to give up time with your wife or your children that is necessary, but I am asking you to sacrifice more for Christ, knowing that the reward is great, knowing that changed lives matter. And I want to call you guys to greater service. If you're not serving, I want to call you to serve, because we all have a spiritual gift, and it isn't this, that, or that, it's this combined with a little bit of this and a little bit of that, all in a unique flavor. There's not 20 people in here with the gift of speaking, 20 people in here with the gift of encouragement. We all have an incredibly unique gift that only applies to us. And so if you're not serving in the church, if you're not helping people, then this church is missing out on a very crucial aspect of what Christ meant for it. And so I want to cast a vision for three years from now where we as a church do have an impact in the community. Where Pastor Jay can come up here and instead of saying, what would happen if this church left? We can say, you know what? This church would be missed if it left because we are serving in the community. Lives are being changed in this church because of the people who put so much time into it. I want to get away from this idea that we just do something half-hearted. You know, we did this coffee cart, and it's not perfect. But as we were making the coffee cart and coming up with the design and like putting a bit of a layout, you know, someone commented, wow, I kind of thought it would just be a table. <laughs> and I just thought to myself, like, he's right, you know, that's usually how we do things. But let's get away from that. You know, the coffee table, you know what, it's exciting right now. The excitement of the coffee table is going to wear off. That's not the point. The point is fellowship. The point is changed lives. We don't want to just have these emotional responses that we change. We want to have true change in our heart. We want to have true meaning and true depth in our church. We want, you know, we have visions of a prayer wall that might be going up in our church soon. That's exciting. You know, you can come bring a prayer request, put it on a wall. Someone's going to walk by that wall, take it and pray through it that week. That's exciting. Let's make church more than just some event that we go to. And so I want to urge you guys, get a life. Get a life. Because if you're trying to keep your life, what does Christ say? You will lose it. Pete's the only one who's listening. You will lose it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? What will a man give in repayment for his soul? There's nothing. There's nothing you can give. So give up your life for Christ, and by so giving up your life, you gain a life. And so I want to leave you guys with that this morning. Let's bow for a word of prayer. 
Father, we thank you so much for your word, and I want to thank you so much for Christ and his life. And I've reduced him to a few lessons this morning, but Christ is far greater than that. Christ is far greater than that. He is more than just someone who gives good leadership principles. He is more than someone who lived a good life. He is the Messiah, the Son of God. He came in human flesh, in the power and the fullness of God, and and did miracles. And he displayed and gave us the example of giving up his entire life so that one day he will come in glory. And he will finally get the glory that he deserves. He will finally get the, the praise, the accolades, and the recognition that he deserved while he was here on earth. Lord, may we follow his example. Would you give us the strength of the Spirit to be bold, to be confident, to give up our lives for the sake of Christ and the sake of the gospel, for the benefit of this church and the people who are here. May we give our lives to benefit them. Lord, would it be a glory to you. Help us not to boast in these things, but as a servant serves his master, may we just say, I have done merely what I should. Give us the desire to serve you with our whole hearts, with our whole lives. And Lord, would you take the meager offering of our lives and would you multiply it? Would you make it meaningful and impactful for your glory? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.